Welcome to the Love Fly podcast. Paul Tizan, Fear of Flying Coach. And today's guest is a pal of mine I've known for quite a while now, Captain Dave Mabbott. And Mabs is on here and he's given his time to answer a whole bunch of questions that have come from the Facebook group. So thank you and uh, welcome, Dave. Thanks, Paul. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Um, yeah. Obviously, uh, we haven't uh, seen each other for a couple of years, but uh, I used to thoroughly enjoy the flying without fear stuff that we used to do together with Virgin. And you know, just quick potted history. Just uh, spent uh, 20 years in the military with the Air Force. Uh, joined, the, uh, joined Virgin Atlantic in 1996 and retired uh, just last year, actually. So called it a day in aviation after 44 years. I think uh, I've probably got enough experience to be able to answer most questions we'll see what happens people want to disagree with me that's absolutely fine i'll leave it over to you sir with the questions yeah thank you dave when uh, you can't visualize uh, if you can visualize this as uh, dave Barrett is like a big he's like a like a, a man mountain like a rugby playing kind of he's the sort of guy that you think well you know no matter what happens to the aircraft he'll he'll be all right because he just you've got that sort of big sort of comforting way about you you know like <laughs> he's got it sorted and one of the, there's lots of things that I really liked about your presentation when you used to do it. So we'll get into the questions. One of the ones which I personally liked was that because of your, you also did an engineering degree, was that your ability to talk about the integrity and the strength of the aircraft. I just wondered if you could kind of just touch on, say something about that, because I always used to like the way you used to talk about that. Okay, well, I'll do what I can here. Ultimately, aircraft are designed to be extremely strong um, because they have to do two things. One is that they obviously have to put up with the environment in which they work. And secondly, they've got to last a long time. They're expensive pieces of kit. So uh, when the designers get together to build these things, they have to be absolutely certain that the aircraft are going to stay in one piece, firstly, and that they're going to be able to do the job for a long time. Certainly when it comes to aircraft design, I've never been in a situation where I've always felt that the aircraft was flimsy or anything like that. Yes, of course, in small light aircraft, you see micro lights flying around, you've held together with bits of string and screwdriver, you know, screws and so on. And you might think, mm, that looks a bit dodgy. But when it comes to commercial aviation or military aviation, whichever way you look at it, they really are built to uh, very accepting standards uh, and extremely strong. One of the things that, uh, that used to come up quite a lot in the actual face-to-face -face flying without fear courses was the the fact that the aircraft seemed to flap around quite a lot and one of the uh, things that we used to talk about was the fact that actually if you could just imagine a boat or anything just moving on the surface of a water or a car driving over cobbles the thing is actually moving around quite a lot and you time to kind of accept it because it's actually attached to the ground in some way of course in the air you don't see that but what you do see is the aircraft riding exactly the same effects as, as you have on water or on a road. And the wings seem to be flapping around outside. And you're thinking, my goodness me, are they actually going to stay attached to the aircraft? Uh, well, there are two reasons really why you see them flap around. Firstly, is if they were stiff and they were really stiff, the ride would be incredibly uncomfortable. So if you imagine taking your car with no suspension over a cobbled street, that is what you would have if you had a stiff wing. So if you have a nice wing that's flexing around and actually absorbing some of the discomfort that you would normally feel, 
that's uh, that's that's exactly what it's designed to do. Now these wings are built to incredibly incredible strains, far more than weather or anything like that could possibly throw at an aircraft. And certainly uh, over the last 40, 50, even 60 years now, the designers have got aircraft strength down to a, a, an absolute T. They know exactly what they're doing in terms of, of aircraft strength, flexibility, and ensuring that the aircraft is going to be completely safe. Structural failures in aircraft just don't happen now. Mm -hmm. Certainly you could have said maybe 100 years ago that was certainly possibly true, but in these days, no. I think you can rest assured that aircraft are built to last. I hope that is answering right. the question there, Paul. No, that's great. And I, and I, I think that's, that's one of the things I always used to like about that. And you've just done it really nice and succinct there. So thank you. So let's get into some questions then. There's, there's obviously some, some that are aimed around pilots. So I'll go to, so John asked, John Bond asked a question about what happens if the pilot's unwell and, you know, can't continue the flight. What, what would you say to that? I suppose the, the honest answer is because we're human beings, there's always a possibility that a pilot could have some form of if like uh, illness. It could be um, food poisoning. It could be just a stomach upset. It could be a headache. It could be any, anything that might affect their performance. But one of the things about aviation, of course, is there's always two, or at least a minimum of two pilots on board the aircraft. The chances of somebody going to work knowing that they're unwell, I have to say, is extremely rare because you're talking about a long time in the office, if you like. You could be probably going to different destinations where you could be a couple of days away from home. And so you would not really choose to go to work if you weren't feeling very well. Secondly, and most probably more importantly, is you're not actually allowed to go to work if you're not feeling very well. The, the law actually says that if you're not fit to fly, mm -hmm. then a pilot must declare himself unfit and not go to work. Now, clearly, you can go to work feeling perfectly well, and it may well be that when you're halfway through a long flight to the west coast of the States or even to the Far East or something, you start to feel a bit unwell. And that's the point at which you would say to your colleague, I'm not feeling so great here, and then you'd have to come up with a plan. So if you've just started a flight, for example, and there's just two of you, it might well be that the crew decision would be, I think it's probably safe for us to return back to our point of departure, or if it's halfway along a flight, you might want to think about a diversion. But always, always the decisions that are being made based around the risk to mm. what's going to happen to not only your colleague, but also to all the passengers on, and crew on board as well. Yes. So it might well be that sometimes a plane will go on to destination with a pilot that's not feeling very bright. But the one thing I would say to you is that the chance of it happening to two pilots on board, of course, is fairly remote. And in that instance, and I can't say I can ever think of a situation where it's occurred, where you've had both pilots incapacitated, although I'm sure that there are movies that will demonstrate that there are yes. answers to all of yes. these questions, um, that actually it's something that's planned for well ahead. Mm. The other thing I would say is, of course, is the pilots have to pass medical examinations. So there are certain key illnesses where pilots will not be allowed to fly mm. if they have certain ailments. So the, the obvious ones are perhaps heart problems or, yes. um, or migraines are typical. Anything which might affect the capacity of a pilot to operate, they're not actually allowed to by, mm. uh, by the regulations. Yeah, that's a good one. Because I think 
I mean, I'll ask the, the question, which somebody will be thinking this is like, all oh, right, yeah, so you get on board, you all feel healthy, and then one of you has a heart attack, you know, like, God forbid, but then what? You know, that, that's the sort of question you're used yeah, to, yeah. isn't it? And, <laughs> and, the, and the answer to that is, because it's a human life involved, you would actually get the aircraft down on the ground as fairly, as quickly as you could, taking advice around what's going on. So typically what would happen on any flight is, and certainly with uh, the long-haul flying, was that we'd always have contact with a, an organisation called Medlink. Mm. And uh, in the first event of somebody being unwell on the aircraft, and it doesn't matter who it is, then we would contact Medlink and say, this is the situation we've got. They would make a medical diagnosis and then say, well, this is the best course of action, or this is the recommendation that we would have for you, whether it's to go on to destination, return to your point of departure, or whether to divert to somewhere where they have the appropriate medical facilities. That we've always had defibs on board and things anyway, haven't yeah. we? So we've got all the equipment, they know exactly what's going on. And exactly what the same thing would happen if it was a pilot. So mm. the other pilot is fully trained, fully capable of taking that aircraft. That's why we go through the training processes that we do. To be able to get that aircraft to a point of landing safely, knowing full well that your colleague perhaps wasn't very well. Now, and the other part of it is if you're sat next to somebody who isn't feeling very well, then obviously you'd want to do your very best to make sure that they get the best help they can as soon as they can. Yeah, so nice. it's, it's no really different. And at the end of the day, you know, certainly in my experience, it's very, very rare for pilots to be ill firstly. It does happen, but it's extremely rare. And, of course, we're trained to deal with it. One of the things that we do in a simulator is pilot incapacitation. What happens if your colleague actually has a moment where he goes, you know, I'm not feeling very well at all. You know, sometimes you can you can go from being perfectly all right to feeling very, very shaky in the space of a couple of minutes. And, the, and part of the trick is to pick up on that and then to, to deal with it. So we're no different to any other human being when it comes to illnesses, etc. But we are trained to deal with the situations that we see when we when we encounter them. All right. So let's keep, keep with the health thing. So Claire Davis asked a question around about mental health. Uh, how's that? monitored, checked, etc. Well, it's true that mental health side of things has definitely come to the forefront based on incidents that have happened in the last, I'd say, probably about 10, 12 years ago now. And it was a, it was a very hot topic for a long time. And of course, it was all over the press. The reality of it is that that was dealt with very, very quickly by the medical authorities. So they now introduce a form of mental health screening into your annual medical. All pilots have to go through annual medicals to, to ensure that they're still fit to fly. Part of the screening process of that is conversations between you and the examiner to make sure that you're okay. There's lots of questions asked around your background and you know how you're feeling, etc. But the other part of it is you wouldn't knowingly go to work with a colleague who you thought was a bit dodgy. When we when you're flying with with colleagues, one of the first things you do is you start you get to know them. So sometimes you know you might meet somebody for the first time. You wouldn't just go straight into let's go and fly an aeroplane. You'll obviously have a chat, see what they're about, you know, get a feel for where they are in terms of their just attitude on life, if you like, the fun that you're going to have, the quick chat about oh, what do you think you're going to do when you're down route in Los Angeles, for example. Innocent questions but all there at the same time where you're thinking a colleague that I could know I can get along with and I know I can trust, et cetera. If there's any alarm bells, then straight away, you're going to be thinking, hmm, this is going to be interesting. What are we going to do about this? Now, one of the things that we do have in the aviation industry is what we call a peer intervention program. And if we are in any doubt about somebody's mental state, 
firstly, we have the ability to perhaps question them, but in a in a in a non-threatening way. And then secondly, is we have the ability to report that to say we have an issue here, we think mm. this needs to be resolved. So the combination of just getting on with your colleague and then also with the peer intervention programs plus the screening for the medical side of things has taken on a whole new approach to mental health in the pilot world. The other thing I'd mention is pilots are no different to anybody else. We all suffer from anxieties. We all have our own little issues. It's not, we're not perfect by any stretch of imagination. So just because I know I'm talking to people who are afraid of flying or, have, or anxious about flying, but there might be people who are flying who are anxious about financial problems, anxious mm. about family problems, all sorts of things can trigger exactly the same reactions. And what we have to do as pilots is firstly share that if it's a problem and deal with it because you can't go to work if you've got issues that are good, that are going to be potentially a problem mm. for your colleague but also for the people that you're flying with as well. So I hope that kind of summarises yeah. that. No, that's good. Thank you. Uh, so I feel like I'm... <laughs> It's feel like I'm, I'm, it's a question and answer session. I'm firing that. So. Really, isn't it? I mean, let's face it. <laughs> well, it's quite it's <laughs> you nice. There, get all these questions come from the floor. Be like, oh, I need five seconds to think about that one. Okay, yeah, here no, we go. You're doing great. I mean, <laughs> well, even you know, you've got a lot of experience, and you were you were great at dealing with any question that was thrown at you. I never saw you flummoxed. So um, I'm going to try and murder a couple of people's names now because obviously I've taken them off the Facebook group. So I'll have a go at this one. But this one's come from, I think it's Marithelis. I'm not even going to attempt to destroy her surname. But uh, she's asked a few questions. So thank you for those. So there's one here, which is linked into also one by Debbie Robotham as well, which is around this thing about flying... So there's a mixture here. So flying for 13 hours, you know, like 14 hours, keeping it mechanically going. And then if that route happens to be over the sea, is that a problem? Is it, you know, is there, is there are parts of the world where you just like, that's it, you're stuffed because you can nowhere to land. And and then Marathelis yet asked, are there islands along the way that you can sort of make emergency landings on and stuff? So you've got this kind of long distance over water, What's the backups? What's the routes? So I'll just shut up and let you there, do it. There are a whole pile of questions in there, aren't there? Really? There are. So yeah. let's, so I'll let's shut up for half an hour. Try and Shall tackle I? these in, in some form, <laughs> sensible order. I suppose the first thing is, is that the aircraft are very highly maintained. So unlike your car, which you probably just put petrol in, very few people, I would imagine, check their tyres every day or put oil in it or, or just check the electrics are working, that the alternator's doing what it needs to do, the brakes are all working absolutely perfectly, and yet you're quite happily jumping your car for days at a stretch and you'll just put petrol in. Well, almost, almost aviation is the same, except that our limitation is fuel. So when we run out of fuel, and don't get me wrong on that one, we don't run out of fuel, but if that is the limitation on what we can and can't do in terms of flight, uh, for flight length. The reason I say that is that the aircraft are, every time they go flying, everything is mechanically checked. So the tyres are checked, the oil levels are checked, the electrics are checked, all of the systems can self-report in to make sure that they're working properly. Um, You've also got to remember, of course, that one of the things about aviation is that there's no one single point of failure, or at least as a general rule, that's what it is. There's always redundancy built in. And therefore, really, the limitation on aircraft is the fuel load. And so aircraft will fly for 
well, in the old days, you probably got eight hours out of a long-distance jet aircraft, like a 707 or a DC-8. These days, we're doing 14, 15, 18 hours even. And the limitation is, well, there are two limitations. One is the fuel load. And the second one is, of course, the crew, who can only work a certain number of hours. So that's what tends to be the limitation on, on the uh, aircraft itself. The aircraft will go forever, just like your car does if you actually do look after it. But the majority of us are quite happy to accept that a car only needs petrol. And only when you get a warning light do you go, oh, I better put some oil in it or, or the tyre pressure sensor or something goes off that you think I better put some air in the tyres. I know I'm being a bit flippant there, but that's actually generally true. It is true. But the, the other thing I'll make just a sort of crowbar in there is the fact that, you know, even your most reliable car, even if it's a really expensive Tesla, you're looking at 100 grand compared to millions and millions for an aircraft. So they're not even like for like, are they? No, absolutely right. And, and of course, the other the, the, the key thing is, is that they're all built with a lot of redundancy in mind. And that kind mm. of brings me on to the second one, which, the second question, I think, which was around flying long distances over water where you can't land. Yeah. Well, one of the, the, one of the things that was, uh, I remember talking about this, uh, uh, flying without fear once, and I said, you know, there was an aircraft that was built in the 1930s that had 10 engines on it. And it was based on the assumption that, you know, one of them was definitely going to fail, if not two, on, on any one given flight. And there was a lady in the audience who insisted that all 10 were going to fail. And it was just like, come on, you know, there's a limit to what's going on in terms of, uh, you know, do you really expect that 10 out of 10 engines are going mm -hmm. to fail? But that was the thinking at the time. And obviously the air, uh, aircraft were, you know, Obviously, four engines was the norm for a very long time. Then we mm. went to three, and now we're down to two. And the reason for that is the total reliability of yeah. aircraft systems. Now, aircraft engines these days, I have to say, although there are the odd recorded incident of an, of, uh, of an engine perhaps not performing as it should, they last for thousands and thousands of hours. And if you can just imagine the, air, the number of aircraft that are flying around the world now where we hear very, very little about reliability issues it's because they are so reliable the chances of, of an engine failure are close to zero the chances of two engines failing are even less than that so we are talking about very very close to zero mm -hmm. and of course i can't ever say that it would never happen but it just it just statistically is not there so we are talking about total reliability now the other thing about aircraft is not just engines of course it's about all the systems that go on on in the aircraft as well it's about supply of electrical power hydraulic power it's about supply of air and uh, air conditioning it's about pressurization all of these things are taken into account and so there's multiple systems there's never one mm. system that's going to dictate a failure so you would never have one generator on an aircraft you'd never have one air conditioning system you'd never have one hydraulic system Everything is backed up. Since the introduction of twin engine operations, that's largely been driven because the reliability of aircraft systems has got so good now yeah. that they, the chances of a failure is so, so remote that we even allow now for single failures to happen so that there's enough redundancy built into, into the aircraft. Now, when twin engine aircraft operations were first started, I guess the biggest hurdle was to try and get across the Atlantic. Now, when this was all introduced, they used to say, well, can we build an aircraft which is totally reliable to last us for, say, 60 minutes if you had a critical failure? So like an engine failure or a pressurization failure or something like that. So they came up with a system called ETOPS. 
which is extended twin operating procedures. And what they did there was they looked at the entire aircraft system and said, right, firstly, we have to guarantee that or try and guarantee that things aren't going to fail. So the aircraft themselves were built to a different standard. They're maintained to a different standard. And then also when the uh, aircraft is is then finally released to service, it has to, has to then say you have to be within 60 minutes of an airfield where you can guarantee to land. Mm. And by that, I mean the aircraft, the airport itself is suitable for the aircraft that you're flying into it. And the weather is guaranteed to be good or guaranteed to be above a limit where you can actually get the aircraft safely into it. Now that worked fairly well, except that of course the Atlantic probably needed a bit more than 60 minutes. So they so they built more redundancy into the aircraft systems and they came up with a 90 minute rule. And the bottom line is you can pretty well fly across the Atlantic and always be within 90 minutes of any, what I call, what we call emergency diversion. So it might be the, the big ones of like Iceland, Northern Scotland, Gander in um, and the Newfoundland and Canada, and then all the places in the States, of course. There's the Azores, there's Bermuda. There's lots of places in the Atlantic where you can get to within 90 minutes. And the rules were built around the fact that the aircraft had to be able to get there. So not only would it get there with the event of an engine failure, but if you had a depressurization issue, or if you had anything that might go wrong with the aircraft. Of course, what they did was they turned around and said, well, okay, we'll allow for that, but we're going to have it all at once. So you're going to have an engine failure and a depressurization, and you're going to lose a generator, and you're going to lose a hydraulic system all at once. They're going to take that into account, and the aircraft has to be able to get to a destination somewhere within that 90 minutes. Now, we know that engines pretty well don't fail these days. So you can safely say that the chances of having a double engine failure is zero. Pressurization problems, we don't have very many of those these days. I mean, certainly 100 years ago or 60, 70 years ago, I would have said, yes, that was a possibility, but we just don't see that anymore. And all the other faults that go into the decision-making process for extending twin operation are largely built into a super safe way of operating the aircraft. And if for whatever reason, like the, the weather is not good enough or the aircraft has got a technical fault on it, then we just don't go. It's as easy as that. You don't even get mm. the aircraft into the air because there's no point. Mm. So, so in terms of operating twin engine aircraft over large expanses of water, then you know I think the rules themselves take it into account, plus the reliability and the redundancy built into the aircraft. Now, of course, this leads on to, mm. well, what about these extra, extra, extraordinary distances now that people are flying across large expanses of water like the Pacific? Well, the systems have got so good that they've gone from not 90 minutes now, but they're saying the chances of having all of these faults and dealing with it the way that we deal with it. So we allow all the faults that you could possibly imagine all happening at once with the chance of that happening of being zero or very close to zero. Mm. They've actually gone up to over three hours. Yeah. So if you can imagine being three hours over the, over the water with a failure, which means that you'd have to divert somewhere else. You have to find somewhere within that three hours. Yes. So what happens is when the flight plan is put together, they make sure that the aircraft is never more than that distance, whether it be 90 minutes or three hours away from an emergency airfield, which has to be suitable for the aircraft yeah. and the weather has to be guaranteed. And if those conditions are not meant, then the aircraft will fly somewhere else to make sure they can it. So there is no flight anywhere on the globe that doesn't meet those criteria. 
and therefore there's always a place to land. So it goes back to the emergency airfield over miles and miles of water. There's always a place to go. That's very reassuring. I think that's... I've uh, shot myself with that. Yeah, that, that was good. Yeah, I think we need to just pause and enjoy the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Your job sure. is done. Yeah, I think that was, uh, that was superb. And I think that's answered quite a few of those questions there. I mean, sometimes people ask about ditching and stuff, but we've... We don't tend to talk. We talked about that on one of the other podcasts, and quite often we just talk about you know Sully Sullenberger landing in the River Hudson, proving even with that extreme situation that you can do it with something that never happened before, and that the aircraft float and the and he didn't even have a chance to do some of the procedures that absolutely could have done. Yeah. You know, it was uh, absolutely amazing, did an amazing job. Did an amazing yeah. job. So and again, this is you have, that has to be put into perspective. I mean, when you, if, if you look at the number of incidents that you see in aircraft operations compared to the many thousands of flights there are on a daily basis, you know, this is a one-off. And I kind of, I guess that's going to come to one of the questions you were leading to about how can we trust the aviation industry. Mm. Back to you on that one. Yeah, okay. So let's go to, so this is from uh, Marithelis, who's the gift that keeps on giving. She's provided a lot of questions for this podcast. It's, 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 it's almost your podcast. It's great, though, isn't it? It's really good. And I think the question here is then, how can, how can we trust aviation and stay calm flying in the light of recent events? Now, OK, this is, this is a good question. And it's a good question because actually there are, again, lots of um, the ways of approaching it. The first one I would say is that you you have to be conscious of the of the frequency with which these major incidents happen and the reality is they're extremely rare the chances are you're more likely to have an incident falling over and dying on your doorstep than you are ever going to have in an aircraft incident now i know i don't have the statistics for that but that's the reality of it i mean you could walk out of your out of your home anything could happen on the way to work or taking the kids to school or or whatever it is you're doing, and you have no control of it whatsoever. But the thing about aviation is that actually it is incredibly safe. I never went to work in 44 years thinking I wasn't going to go home to the wife and the kids. It was all about how much fun am I going to have at the place where I'm going to? Am I going to earn a crust so I can keep my family going? And am I going to make it to old age and retirement? And of course, you know, fortunately for me, I have. But the, the, the whole point is, is I never, ever went to work thinking this is an unsafe thing to do. Uh, on that of, point, because I've got a nervous flyer in my head now, yeah. you would probably say to that, how do you guard against complacency? OK, so that's a very good question. And the, and the reason is because actually you do want to go home to the wife and the kids. So mm. complacency, it, it, I have to say, I can understand the question. And it is very easy to get complacent about something that you do do day in, day out, and you have a lot of knowledge about. Mm. And sometimes it's very easy. But believe you me, when you're in a situation where things are starting to get a bit stressy, it's very, very quick to put a very professional head on and start going, no, come on, this needs to be sorted out and put right. Now, I have to say in commercial aviation that that, that does happen if you're going into places where the weather isn't very good or, mm. um, or you're, you know, you're under a time pressure or something like that. Then believe me, when the old professional head goes on, the first thing you think about is safety. And you don't make any decisions that are going to put you at risk. And I, when I say that, I mean me at risk. 
and with the best will in the world, and this is a flippant statement, as I've said many, many times before, the pilot's life is far more important than anybody sat down the back. Now, that sounds horrendous, but it's true. I would not put my life at risk. And if I'm not going to put my life at risk, I'm certainly not going to put anybody else's at. So that was, where were we going? Oh, yes, we were talking about... Yeah, staying calm and industry. trusting aviation, yeah, in the light of the, the China. So, so there have been in, instances over the last three or four years now where, I must admit, there's, there have been questions asked, and I completely and utterly understand that. If you take things out of context, if you take them in context, the, the industry is still incredibly safe. And... You can get on an aircraft with, I'm not going to say 100%, but 99.9999999 and keep going, certainty that you're going to be safely at your destination in whatever time scale it is that you've got to do the flight. There were instances with Boeing, I know, with the 737 MAX, and I did answer a question on this many, many uh, a few months ago, and it was talking about Boeing and their attitude to safety now i must admit that has been highly questioned on the telly and on documentaries and so on and i have to say that boeing did not cover themselves in glory on that one however the industry itself did not allow boeing to keep going and saying it's perfectly all right everybody started to question it and go hang on a minute something's not right here and it needs to be sorted and the damage that it did to boeing was quite considerable but also, you've got to bear in mind that actually they weren't allowed to fly the aircraft. So it wasn't a case of, oh, it's perfectly all right. You know, yes, you know, Boeing are actually trying to make money and they're trying to do. But the reality was, no, you're not flying these aircraft. And that was the industry itself, the whole industry, not just the airline or the, the manufacturer dictating what was going to happen. But it was the regulators. It was the airlines themselves. It was uh, people all over the world saying, this is something not right here. And we're not going to we're not going to allow this airplane to fly until we understand what's happened. Now, interestingly, what caused or part of that problem was the single point of failure, which we've talked about previously mm. on this podcast, where we say we design airplanes, they don't have a single point of failure. Yes. And so that has now been fixed, and hopefully we will never see a repetition of that again. Now, you've got to imagine the damage this has done to Boeing as, as a company and they've got to get themselves out of it, and they've got to get a lot of trust back in the, in the people who fly on their products. So yes. they're not going to take any risks going forward. So which brings me to the latest incident, and the answer is we don't know. We just don't know what happened. Something has gone wrong, mm. and it's a horrible thing, and we do not want to see a repeat of whatever it is, but until we know what the problem is, we can't do anything about it. One thing that's things been consistent over the last 70, 80 years, or probably even longer, is that every single incident that's happened to an aircraft, that is in, well, any incident, whether it's involved loss of life or not, is investigated. And they get to the root cause of the problems, and it could be people, it could be, could be uh, backups, it could be aircraft design faults, it could be all sorts of things. But when they know what the fault is, they're always fixed. So it's, so it's very, very rare, for instance, um, for incidents to happen more than once. The Boeing case was an exception, but I think we got to the bottom of that one very quickly by saying, actually, something's not right here. and it needs, We need to stop the aircraft flying. Also, the regulators, the airline companies, you name it, all got together to, to actually have that same voice. So I'm, I don't know what happened in China. It's certainly not great. 
I wouldn't put it off because that's the first incident we've had in the in this year. I'm hoping it will be the last. And it's extremely rare by comparison to all the other things that go on on perhaps your drive to work or, as mm. I say, all the instances where you can put your life at risk, perhaps not knowingly, or even if you do knowingly, but you're quite happy to take that chance, whereas flying is incredibly safe from a not only a regulatory point of view, but from a pilot's point of view, from an airline point of view. They don't want any of this bad publicity because it's not good, not good for the industry at all. So until we get the results back of the latest crash, we have to assume that the aircraft is still safe to fly, unless obviously something comes up from the um, accident data recorders or something like that that points to something, oh, there's something not quite right here. Uh, but it will be investigated and it will be put right. So can we trust the industry? I absolutely am convinced you can, because there are more parts to it than just the manufacturers. Everybody has an interest in staying alive. We certainly don't want an industry that's going to be seen as dangerous because it certainly isn't. It's pr- it is the safest form of transport in the world, without a doubt. And it will continue to be so because there's so much oversight on it. You've got to remember that the media just loves a good story. So we have to be very, very careful about what you hear, see and read. And all I would say is knowledge is a is a thing where you can be led up the garden path very, very quickly. So the best place to get information is people who know what they're talking about. Don't necessarily rely on what you read in the red top papers or anything like that. If you need to speak to somebody, speak to a professional. So in this instance, I'm going to put you straight back to Paul because he is a top, top chap when it comes to putting people on the straight and narrow. I've been very fortunate, people like you that I can ask, and you've been brilliant and generous with your time, is that there's quite a lot that I can answer. But when it gets to the really sort of detailed stuff, there's always someone I can ask. And and that's just a great, it's, be, it's great being a conduit for that, for correct information, because there's such... There's so much crap out there that it's so easy to be taken in and think, well, we, you know, I'm preaching to the converted, you know this, but well, just I have just to be really careful during, what you let during, in your head. During the courses we did, the number of questions that would come out. And, mm. and initially people would say, well, we don't believe you. And so, well, I've been doing this for a long time. And then when you've got several, some, some colleagues um, on the same courses that we used to do, and they say, well, yeah, it's true. So, well, you know, why, why are you disbelieving this? And it's because of what you've seen in the papers or what you've read on, dare I say it, some of the media presentations. Mm. I mean, there's nothing more frightening than air crash investigations, for example. I mean, they do an absolutely brilliant job of terrifying everybody in the first 50 minutes. Quick resume to say, oh, and this is what's been done to fix it. And then the, oh, well, it's perfectly all right now because it's been solved and that's all done in the last couple of minutes or so. So they spend a lot of time dramatising events and making... Mm making it into a, uh, in, well, so sensationalising it, that's exactly yeah. essentially what it is. And mm. what we have to do as professionals is to say, actually, that's not the reality of what's going on here. So so all I would say to the guys who are listening to this is, if you speak to a pilot, speak to a pilot, speak to people who are involved in the industry, and they will not, they will not tell you something that isn't true. You might not like what you hear sometimes, but some, but the, the reality is, is that we've we've been in the industry long enough to know what's safe, what isn't, and also we've also been on the receiving end of training, etc. Where if an incident has happened, 
we've been put in the simulator to fix it. You're not allowed to go out and just pretend that things aren't happening anymore. You, you know, you have to fix it. So there've been loads of instances in my flying career where an investigation's come up with a, a procedural fault or something whereby pilots have had to go back into the simulator to be retrained because it was something we perhaps weren't expecting. But all of that is something that happens. So you can trust the industry very definitely. Good answer, like that. So you'd be pleased to know, you've been very generous with your time. I've got one last question, which I think, I can't read my own writing, but I think it's Emily Covey, who's, is a nice sum up one actually, which is, what is your best advice for nervous flyers? I would say the best advice is to trust the people who are flying you from any part of the world. And I'm not talking just the pilots, I'm talking about the crews. They don't do that because they're terrified of it. The pilots don't do it because they're terrified of it. Uh, a nervous flyer. So I mean, there were two, well, two or three tips, really. One is, is to trust the knowledge that mm. you can get if you do proper research. And the second one is, if you are flying and you're nervous, let the crew know mm. because they are there to help. And if they know that there are people who are nervous on board, they will do their very best to look after you and to give you tips uh, hopefully tips to be able to control the anxiety that you're feeling the second one is to take big deep breaths and the third one is if you get the chance try and get up to the flight deck either before or after a flight and just kind of have a chat with the guys at the front and then you'll see the calm he said with it's a bit like the ducks isn't it with a feet flat you know the paddling desperately underwater in this calm serene thing mm. On the flight deck, don't get me wrong, it's busy. It does get very busy. But you'll find that there's, there's the professionalism shown by the pilots is such that they will know exactly what they're doing at any one time. And they will have time to give you, if that's what you need, to go and have a, just a confirmation that they, they're, per, they're perfectly normal human beings at the front of an aircraft. We're not supermen, we're not gods or anything like that. We're just ordinary people learning the crust. So I think those are probably the best tips. One is breathe. Speak to the crew, and if you get a chance to get onto the flight deck and go and have a quick chat with the pilots, then by all means do it. And the other one is um, is listen to what Paul has to say, uh, frankly, because I've always been really impressed with the explanations given to why we why we feel anxious. And it is everybody feels anxious about something somewhere. So the fact that people are feeling anxious about flying is perfectly okay. Because mm. I get anxious about... My wife gets anxious about spiders, I know that much, so and I have to deal with that on an almost daily basis. But uh, everybody feels anxious about something. So don't. it's nothing, nothing to be worried about in terms of the fact that you are anxious or we are anxious about things. But it's just a case of, right, let's find a coping strategy to deal with it because ultimately yeah, that's what you have to do. And why give up a great holiday because you can't get on an airplane? Yeah, I think that is the thing, isn't it? Mr. Mabs, that is just fabulous. That was some really nice bits of wisdom in there. And okay, it's I'm almost like you've done it before. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, it's, it's a real pleasure. It's been it's lovely to see you again. And uh, you know, so if you if there are questions that do people do have and want to get back to me, I'm you know I'm gonna I won't say I'm not a big fan of Facebook. I'll be honest. Mm. So um, so if people want to um, if people want to get in touch with me via you, I'm always happy to spend time well, with them. You. And um, you know, obviously, if you want to chat things through, we can do that. Thank but, you. Uh, a real pleasure to see you again, sir.